I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Kilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Ava, Bob, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Jamie, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Ryan, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax News listeners. On this edition of the program, more coverage of the Gaza War, Israel-Palestine, and related issues. This time we have not one interview, but two. Later on, we'll be hearing from Shireen Hunter an affiliate fellow at the Center for Muslim Christian Understanding at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service. But first, we have Juan Cole of the Informed Comment blog. Juan is the Richard P. Mitchell Collegiate Professor of History at the University of Michigan and a longtime commentator on the Middle East and South Asia. So with that introduction out of the way, let's get right to it with Juan Cole. Welcome back to Parallax Views, a guest that I very much respect. I've been reading his work probably since my teens in the days of the Iraq War, Juan Cole of Informed Comment, which is an invaluable resource. He's a an incredible scholar. How are you doing? Just great. Thanks for having me on, Mike. So, uh, Professor Cole, I guess what I wanted to talk to you about was your perspective on what has transpired in the past 30 days, not just in uh, Israel, Palestine, in Gaza, uh, but also here in the U.S. domestically with regards to the reaction to the October 7th attack and also the uh, bombing that has been done in retaliation. What are your initial thoughts? Well, I I think that uh, the horrific character of the attack of October 7th by Hamas on uh, Israel um, reminded a lot of Americans of 9-11. And 
or uh, of some of the atrocities of uh, uh, ISIL, uh, the uh, the terrorist organization that was uh, uh, headquartered in Raqqa, Syria. Uh, and um, I think that uh, just as those uh, attacks resulted in uh, U.S. wars in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, or in intensive bombing campaigns at Mosul and, and Raqqa uh, uh, by U.S. and allied air forces. Uh, so I think the American public may see the bombing campaign uh, in, in Gaza as, as somehow similar or as, and equally justified. I think that is a sentiment that's widespread in the United States. Clearly, it's not universal, and it appears that there's a strong uh, division along party lines with uh, uh, Democrats now wanting a ceasefire. In regards to the conditions in Gaza, I know you've had a few blog posts about this. What do you think people need to understand about what is happening in Gaza? And also, uh, what is happening in the West Bank? Because I think people are starting to take their eyes off the West Bank when really there's a lot going on there. It's I would call it an ethnic cleansing. Yes, well, there is some ethnic cleansing going on in the West Bank. The conditions in Gaza are almost unimaginable. Uh, whatever one thinks about the uh, right in international law of Israel to defend itself against uh, Hamas, uh, this campaign in Gaza has become a total war. It's a war against Palestinians living in Gaza, not just against Hamas. Uh, the uh, Israeli Prime Minister uh, Benjamin Netanyahu announced at the beginning of this bombing campaign that he was cutting off water, uh, electricity, uh, and uh, food supplies from Gaza. Gaza you know, was seized by the Israelis in 1967. And uh, over time, it has become uh, a kind of open-air prison. 70% of the population were themselves refugees from southern, what became southern Israel, who, who were driven there during the uh, 1948 war by Zionist forces. Uh, and uh, they uh, are very densely packed into this small strip of land. Uh, it's among the poorest uh, places on earth. The, the unemployment rate uh, is above 50% in general for uh, young uh, people. It, it's 70%. Uh, so it, things weren't good in Gaza before the bombing campaign began. It, water in Gaza came from a, it comes from an aquifer uh, underground water source, which, however, has been uh, polluted by sewage, uh, industrial waste, and because of climate change, the Mediterranean is rising, and so salt water is getting into the aquifer, and people make tea with it. They can taste salt. Um, it's not fit for human consumption, uh, and uh, as a result, uh, Israel had been pumping in potable water from desalinization plants, uh, and that's what was cut off, was the potable water. So people have uh, been forced uh, to, to use well water, aquifer water, uh, and um, some of it is so salty that it's causing dehydration. 
you know, you, your body can only take in so much salt, and taking in salt is a diuretic. It, it, it causes you to expel water. Uh, so if you drink salt water, you actually will expel more water than you take in. Uh, so it will kill you over time. Uh, you just become so dehydrated that you die. Um, and uh, there's danger because of the uh, sewage and uh, other waste of, of disease, uh, children getting cholera and, and dying from dehydration from that. Um, so th this is just inexcusable. Uh, it, 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 you know, the world community should just have told Israel, no, you can't cut off all the water to the people in Gaza. That doesn't target Hamas. Uh, and they're using it as a, a, a social engineering tool because now they say they have restored water to the south, but there's not to the north. So they wanted to move people of Gaza to the south of the Strip. But uh, they, they, their bombing campaigns have destroyed the water pipelines. And then there's no fuel to run uh, generators so that the water can't be pumped through the pipes. So the, the idea that the Israelis had restored water to the south is, is simply a non-starter to begin with. Uh, you, you need uh, nine liters of water a day. Uh, the people in Gaza are getting one or two, uh, and, and some of that is deeply polluted. So I, I cannot understand. I have to tell you, uh, JG, I just cannot understand how the Biden administration can stand by and, and allow Israel to do this because, you know, Israel gets a lot of funding from us and they're dependent on us to some extent. And we could just tell them, no, you can't cut off people's water, but they're not doing it. I wanted to add to that because something that I'm having trouble wrapping my head around in the U.S., we're currently arguing about Rashida Tlaib saying from the river to the sea. Meanwhile, in Israel, we have a, a prime minister, Netanyahu, who invoked the biblical passage about annihilating Amalek, uh, which to me, he's clearly calling for genocide. Um, do you feel that there's a double standard at work? Because I, you know, people are saying, oh, Israel does not target uh, civilians. And yet, on the other hand, you have this rhetoric that is basically saying we need to eliminate all the Palestinians and turn Gaza to rubble. Yeah, well, to be fair, uh, the rhetoric about eliminating Palestinians is uh, characteristic of the far right in Israel. Uh, somebody like uh, Benny Gantz wouldn't say that. Uh, he, he would be in favor of the Israeli colonization of the West Bank, but uh, he would use eliminationist rhetoric. So uh, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu has brought into his cabinet uh, the equivalent of the Proud Boys and the KKK. It, was, it would be as though an American president made the head of the Proud Boys the, the, the head of the uh, Department of Homeland Security. And, and uh, those extremists uh, certainly talk that way uh, about eliminating the Palestinians entirely. And Benjamin Netanyahu has talked in the past about ethnically cleansing them out of Gaza and the out of the West Bank. Uh, and he's, of course, on the far right, although this is generally not recognized by American uh, television anchors. Um, uh, yeah, there's a double standard. Uh, the Americans don't like Palestinians. Uh, uh, I have pointed out that to when the Nazis uh, made their Jews stateless, they just took citizenship away from the German Jews. Uh, one of them remarked that, uh, you know, the 
outside world is constantly criticizing us over our treatment of Jews. Uh, but now that they are stateless, um, who will take them? Uh, who of our critics wants to treat them better than we do? And of course, the Americans didn't take them, and uh, not very many were allowed into Britain, and most countries wouldn't take them, Brazil wouldn't take them. So um, as horrible as it is to say, there was some justice in what the Nazis said, is that a stateless group of people are hated. They're, they're seen as rootless, they're seen as un unsettled. Uh, you don't want to let them into the country because they, they won't ever leave. They don't have a place to go back to. Uh, I've done interviewing with Palestinians in Lebanon who talk about how they, they just can't they can't travel because nobody will let them in. They're 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 seen as a a, a, a visa overstay risk. Uh, and um, so uh, Americans, you know, uh, have reacted in the same way towards this generation of Palestinians as they did in the 30s towards uh, the Jews. And they, they didn't, had low opinion of them uh, as uh, as flotsam, uh, human flotsam. And um, uh, it's, it's really sad to see uh, Jewish Americans piling on against the Palestinians in the way some of them are, uh, given that the situation of the Palestinians right now is very similar to the situation that the Jews were in uh, in the in the, uh, in the 30s and 40s, um, I, I think that uh, Representative Tlaib's uh, 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 plea that we care as much about the dead children of, of, of Palestinians in Gaza as we do about uh, the dead children that that Hamas killed uh, in, in Israel uh, is is an eloquent and and, and just plea, but. Um, it obviously fell on, on deaf ears. What do you think right now? I, I have listeners that are only just becoming aware of the issues around Israel and Palestine. And what do you want those people who are just becoming concerned? You know, maybe they should have been paying attention before, but now uh, the world's attention is on this. What do you think they really need to understand uh and, and what kind of misconceptions do you think people have about all of this? Well, hey, a lot of Americans think that the Palestinians are occupying the Israelis and being mean to them. Uh, and uh, uh, it's entirely the other way around. You know, in, in some ways, this is a conflict over a territory uh, by uh, a an immigrant group. Uh, the, the, the Jews in in Israel have all immigrated there, almost all of them, uh, since the 1920s or so. Uh, a tiny handful of, of them were, came before that, and th there was no large indigenous Jewish population in, in what we, in, in Palestine, in, in what is now Israel, uh, in the 18th and 19th century. I wrote a book about Napoleon Bonaparte's invasion of the Middle East, and he went there and, and uh, did a census, and I think he found 3,000 Jews in, in all of Palestine. So this was a place that was inhabited by Palestinians, by uh, uh, Ottoman uh, subjects uh, who were native to the Palestinian uh, area, which they called Philistine in their letters back home, and, and then they talked about the region, uh, and that was what it was known as, uh, as Palestine.
And um, by um, the 1940s, there were 1.3 million of them. Uh, in the 1948 war, uh, the Israelis ethnically cleansed them, uh, they expelled 750,000 of them uh, from what became Israel. Uh, and um, uh, and then in 1967, seized the rest of historical uh, British Mandate Palestine, the, 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 the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, which were inhabited entirely by Palestinians. Uh, at that time, and uh, they sent in colonists. They sent in Israeli Jews from Israel to uh, settle in these uh, seized territories. And in international law, according to the United Nations Charter, you can't gain territory by warfare. Uh, that's not allowed. Uh, and uh, it is, you know, acceptable that territory gets occupied during a war, but it's only during the war. It's for a short period. You're not supposed to, to change people's lifeways. You're not supposed to send your own population in to settle this occupied territory. Uh, now, it's been since 1967, the Israelis have, have had these territories. There's not an occupation anymore in the way that, that the law books talk about an occupation. It, it, it's a, a, an acquisition of territory. They're ba gradually annexing these places. And the Palestinians have been left without rights. They're stateless. They don't have citizenship in a state. Uh, if, 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 if Israelis show up and steal their orchard, they, they have no recourse. Uh, they, they have to go to the Israeli courts, which don't always recognize the justice of their case. Uh, they're without rights because they're stateless. Uh, and this is not a tenable situation. You can't keep 5 million people, over 5 million people, stateless, and under uh, a military rule or under siege, uh, inev inevitably there's going to be trouble about this. So when the trouble breaks out, the, the world is blaming the Palestinians, but it's structural. You know, it, it, it's uh, it, the, the trouble is breaking out because of the vice in which the uh, Israelis have, which many human rights uh, organizations have decided that is, is not different in kind from the kind of vice that the uh, white uh, Afrikaner uh, elite was keeping the, the blacks of South Africa. I just had two more questions. Uh, the first one is, uh, there's a lot of talk about the goal of eradicating Hamas. Now, I wonder, even if Hamas were to be eradicated, would that really solve this problem? What, what I mean is, I think as long as the status quo that we've had for the past decades uh, remains in place, there will always be another militant group to fill the vacuum. Oh, absolutely. Well, yeah, uh, I, I don't even think that the people who talk about eradicating Hamas believe that it's possible. I think that the, the Israeli government sees the, the, uh, the Gaza Strip and, and the Palestinians in the West Bank um, as unfortunate leftovers of unfinished business. What they really would wish was was that in the 1948 war, the Zionist forces had managed to ethnic cleanse, ethnically cleanse all the Palestinians, and not only 750,000 of them. Uh, and so they got they they got saddled with this uh, remnant uh, uh, of 48, uh, and and um, uh, they want to gradually move them out too. Uh, and in the West Bank, this is clear. As you say, there have been attacks on 
Palestinian hamlets by uh, Israeli squatters who came illegally to squat on Palestinian land uh, from Israel. Um, and and so in, in Gaza, uh, they had surrounded it, besieged it, uh, blockaded it, and they needed, you know, a prison guard uh, for this open-air prison. And uh, they thought Hamas might agree to be the prison guard, that Hamas could tax people in Gaza, uh, provide them some governmental services, lord it over them, uh, but that the Hamas would be satisfied to be Israel's prison guard for Gaza. Uh, and they were, they were hoping that the Palestine Authority of uh, Abbas Mahmoud would be the prison guard for the Palestinians who are imprisoned in the West Bank by the Israeli occupation. Uh, and why would they do this? Well, they give you know the Palestinians some money. They allow Qatar to uh, send money through Israeli uh, banks and with Israeli permission uh, to to Gaza. So they thought they could bribe uh, Hamas into uh, being uh, a quiet prison guard in Gaza. And it turns out that that was an unrealistic expectation that uh, that Hamas uh, and, and virtually nobody in Gaza was satisfied to be living in this open air prison uh, and uh, and there's no justification for what Hamas did. Uh, there's uh, uh, a series of war crimes in international law, which must be roundly condemned. It's horrific. It's a gut punch for any humane person. Uh, nevertheless, uh, it, it was uh, uh, it was not because Palestinians are intrinsically violent or uh, that uh, it's, something is wrong with those people, which is, I think, the way that a lot of uh, Westerners and Israelis think about it. Uh, the, the, it was an untenable situation that people had been put in, and so uh, it, it seems not. Uh, it seems not expected that there would be trouble, and there's trouble on the West Bank as well. Uh, by 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 explaining why these things happened, I'm not condoning them or justifying them by any manner of means. Uh, but I think it's it's just stupid to to think that you can keep five million people in this kind of situation uh, and and expect no trouble to arise from it. Last question I had for you. I know we've gone a minute or so over, but um, you know, one thing I keep hearing is that once this is all said and done, and and especially once Netanyahu uh, is out of power or in jail, uh, given his um legal problems, then things will just somehow magically get better. You know, if if we just had Benny Gantz in power over Netanyahu, uh, things will just, you know, get much better um, and we'll finally have peace. I'm a little bit skeptical of that. I'm curious as to your thoughts on that and what you think it'll take uh, for this to be resolved. It would take a Palestinian state for it to be resolved. The Palestinians want their dignity they want citizenship in a state. They want their own courts. That, that, that they want control of their own property. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you're stateless, you don't really own anything. You don't really have any rights. Uh, you can't keep these people stateless forever. And as long as you do, there's going to be trouble. And uh, so, so, yes, you know, you could go back to the status quo ante or change it a little bit by having a demilitarized zone in northern Gaza. Uh, after this, uh, uh, after this bombing campaign is is, is concluded, 
Uh, but it's you, you're just going back to the same untenable situation that produced the last explosion, and there would just be more explosions. Uh, and even the right-wing Israeli idea that you could ethnically cleanse the Palestinians is, is, is again, one of those stupid ideas coming from bigotry and prejudice and, and lack of knowledge of the world. What if you could chase three million Palestinians out of the West Bank into Jordan? Jordan is a country of uh, seven million citizens. Uh, how do you think it's going to absorb three million Palestinians? Wouldn't there be a danger of the Jordanian government falling over it? And if the Jordanian government fell, what might replace it? Might not a, a militant uh, government replace it? So would you really have improved your security situation uh, uh, by, by trading in a stable Jordan for, for an unstable one? Or have you sent those uh, people in Gaza to, somehow into the Sinai Peninsula? Uh, do you think that they, they won't act out there? Do you think that they, they won't endanger the, 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 the shipping of the entire world that goes through the Suez Canal? So and these any alternative to a, a full Palestinian state with, with citizenship rights for the Palestinians is doomed just to cause a lot of trouble. Real quick in that regard, one of the, the talking points that I often hear is, why can't the Palestinians go to uh, another Arab country? And what, what I tell people, and I'm wondering if you uh, would concur with this, is that ultimately uh, the Palestinian identity it's an identity that has been forged over time and, uh, you know, they deserve statehood. Uh, it's a legitimate identity. And I think people have to understand, you know, they're not just Arabs. They are Palestinian Arabs. It's a, it is a legitimate identity to have. Um, and they do have a connection to this land. Yeah, Arabs are not a race. It's a linguistic uh, category. And uh, the Palestinians are distinctive. Uh, they're not Lebanese, and they haven't been treated as Lebanese, the ones who were exiled to Lebanon. Uh, they're not Egyptians, and they haven't been treated as Egyptians in, in Egypt. And, uh, um, you know, the fact is that Arabic is, uh, is a little bit like uh, the Romance languages. It has lots of branches. And uh, we, we, we think it's normal for Portugal to be a country and Spain to be a country. They have different languages. Well, the, the dialects of Arabic are often almost as uh, uh, as um, different from one another as Portuguese and Spanish are from one another. And uh, people in Palestine couldn't understand uh, a village Moroccan to save their lives. So it's it's an illusion, this idea of them all being Arabs. Uh, they, it's, like, it's like saying they're all Romance speakers. And uh, uh, it has nothing to do with politics. As you say, there's been an ethnogenesis. Uh, the Palestinians have come to a national identity uh, over time and through the impact of history, not least their interactions with the Israelis. Uh, and uh, that genie can't be put in a bottle in it. It can't be dispersed. Uh, the Palestinians are a people, and they deserve the dignity of the people. I want to thank you again, Professor Juan Cole, for coming on Parallax Use. How can my listeners keep up with your work? And once again, thank you so much. Well, uh, I have a blog, Informed Comment, and it's J-U-A-N-C-O-L-E dot com. Uh, and I, I put up my thoughts quite frequently there, so that's the way to keep up with me. Next up, Shireen Hunter joins us. She is an affiliate fellow of the Center for Muslim Christian Understanding at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service. 
She's also a contributor to the Responsible Statecraft online magazine, where she wrote a piece, oh, about last year, entitled Unresolved Palestinian Issue Remains a Major Source of Mideast Tension. Boy, was she on point with that one. She wrote that in May of 2022, and she warned that trouble would be brewing due to the Palestinian issue not being dealt with. So, in light of what happened on October 7th and what has transpired since with the Israeli bombing of Gaza, I thought it was high time to invite Shireen back on the show. So, with all that in mind, let's get right to it with Shireen Hunter. Welcome back to Parallax Views, a guest who I hold in very high regard. Shireen Hunter, an affiliate fellow at the Center for Muslim Christian Understanding at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service. She is also a contributor at various times to Responsible Statecraft, a publication we follow here closely at Parallax Views. How are you doing, Shireen? I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine. A little depressed by what's happening in the world, but otherwise I'm doing okay. In regards to uh, Israel-Palestine, you wrote a piece uh, last year saying that, you know, as long as the Palestinian issue uh, is not solved politically, uh, we're going to see a lot of uh, problems arise. And I think you were very prophetic about that. That's right. That's right. Could you speak to uh, why the Palestine issue hasn't been addressed and what needs to happen going forward? Well, I think that the problem is that uh, uh, this is a very long standing thing and it's been going on for for so many years. You know, if we go to the, in fact, the, the roots of it goes all the way to, I would say, the late 19th century. Uh, and uh, with the increased migration to Palestine. Um, and at, even at that time, people warned that this is going to be a, 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 a conflictual uh, situation. Um, the problem, I think the reason was this issue has not been solved, or in my uh, observations over a very long period of time, is one thing is the Arabs' inability to really act in in uh, in together vis-a-vis the Palestinian issue, uh, this was one reason. I, I think that uh, um, the Arab states, uh, uh, certainly in the 1950s and 60s and 70s, and even today, some of them used uh, the Palestinian issue. Uh, in their own inter-Arab uh, uh, rivalries and and and, and conflicts. And so they really went their own way. They wanted to secure their own immediate interests. For example, uh, when Egypt signed the peace treaty in 1979, uh, their interest was to get the Sinai back. That was the Egyptian territory. They wanted to get the Sinai back. And so they didn't really do much to gain the... uh, uh, any anything for Palestinians in those negotiations. That's a fact. Um, 
maybe some people intended to do something, but they didn't. And I think that once the Egypt was out of the equation, the balance really shifted in the Arab world. The uh, Jordanians, of course, Jordan is a very tiny country and, and so on, and their whole creation was a sort of a British, you know, post-colonial uh, um, gerrymandering in the Middle East. And so they couldn't do, Jordan by itself couldn't do anything. And then, of course, Syria also and Iraq, and, uh, and some of them uh, went, uh, for example, Saddam Hussein, uh, for whatever reason it was, it turned its attention to Iran. And consequently, you know, there was no more Iraqi input in regard to the Palestine issue. And of course, the Persian Gulf Arab states, they really never did anything about uh, about uh, uh, Palestine. And of course, the latest uh, times is uh, that uh, they have started their own process of reconciliation uh, with Israel. I think reconciliation with Israel is a good thing, but it shouldn't be at the expense of the Palestinians. Um, the other, I think, miscalculation has been uh, that um, uh, I would say that the Israelis have thought that uh, the other Arabs can sort of speak for Palestine. And that is not correct. I mean, so they had thought that, okay, well, if, you know, like in the old days, it was Jamal Abdel Nasser who championed the uh, Palestinian God. Okay, if Jamal Abdel Nasser is, um, is get rid of or dies as he did, then the Palestine issue can be resolved in a way that Israel is famous. After that, it was Hafez al-Assad, you know, and or after that, it was uh, uh, Saddam Hussein. Now it is Iran. They say, well, if Iran doesn't support Palestinian cause, then everything will be solved. This is avoiding the fact that Palestinians are not just a cipher, you know, they are a people and they are, uh, they have some agency. You see, you, you cannot see them just like a puppet that at different times in history, somebody else has pulled their strings. You see, this, in my opinion, has been a, a major problem. And, uh, you know, right now we are saying, they, they used to say that if PLO was eliminated. Well, PLO was eliminated in Lebanon in 1982. And now they're saying if Hamas is eliminated, something thing is going to happen. So my problem has always been to see that both Arab countries, it's not just Israel, Arab countries and Israel, they have treated um, this uh, manifestations of a problem as it causes. If Hamas came into being, it was because there was a grievance there. And so they took advantage of that. If Hamas is destroyed, probably as long as the grievances are not addressed, something else will come and take over. What I feel like you're saying, and I, I feel this has been echoed by some other voices, is that, you know, let's say it's possible to destroy Hamas. And I yes. question whether that is entirely possible. But even if Israel could do that, uh, there will be another resistance group to take its place, and it could be just as, as uh, militant. That's right. Absolutely. In fact, I think I worry that uh, given what has happened uh, you know, um, in the last uh, month or so, 
Uh, I think that probably uh, for a while there may be uh, people are so uh, tired and traumatized that we might see a kind of a temporary calm. But uh, if there is another movement come up, most probably it will be even more bitter and more vengeful than even Hamas. You see, this is what I'm saying. My thesis has been you have to deal with Palestinians. You cannot just deal with uh, whether it is Arab states or Iran or Turkey, you know, because they cannot force Palestinians to accept something that they don't want. So in other words, just to clarify this just a, a yes. bit further, yes. I feel like a lot of people will talk about, well, you know, Qatar has to play this role uh, in, in, in solving the problem after this war is over or you know, Saudi Arabia has to help. But you're saying, well, what about the Palestinians themselves? They need to that's be part of the process. That's what I'm saying. That is, the Palestinians have to be part of the process because they are the ones that have ha, have suffered. And, you know, Qatar, you know, may have some influence, but what uh, they are asking uh, from Qatar uh, I, I'm sure they're asking that Qatar should not give any more money to Hamas. That's basically Qatar's role has been providing uh, financial help to Hamas. But if they stop paying, then they lose their influence. You see what I mean? Then Hamas will say, why should I listen to Qatar? They're not going to give me a dime. You see, this is the dichotomy and this is the confusion, it seems to me, that I see in a lot of the discussions in the U.S. media and in the newspaper uh, and even in the West. And that is the unwillingness to accept the reality of Palestinians as a separate people. You know, I don't want to misquote somebody, but I think it was one Israeli leader said, well, there is no such a thing as Palestinian people, or that there is already a Palestinian state, and that is Jordan. Well, maybe this was true 100 years ago, but in the last 75 years, there has been forged a Palestinian identity. Because identities often are forged in conflict and in deprivation. So I think this is the problem. And I am really very, um, uh, uh, how shall I say, I'm not an advocate for anybody or any of these groups, but I'm just trying to explain that you cannot ignore what is the basic cause of the conflict. And that is non-recognition of Palestinians as a people, as a people that have right to run their own country and their own government. And, uh, you know, I have to say, yes, the Arabs made a mistake in 1948 by not accepting the partition, partition plan. Probably if they had accepted the partition plan, although I'm not 100% sure, by now some sort of a modus vivendi would have been established between the Arabs and Israelis, between Palestinians and Israelis. But they didn't do that. That doesn't mean that now we have to continue the current situation. What do you think the biggest misunderstanding Americans have about the Israel-Palestine conflict or issue or, you know, I, I know it, it goes by many names, but what do you think the biggest misconception people have is? 
Well, biggest misconception people have is, in my opinion, is that they think that uh, the Palestinians just are nothing but uh, a group of terrorists that are basically dislike uh, the Israelis for being Israelis, uh, essentially, uh, and that uh, if it wasn't uh, for their activities, uh, there would be peace uh, in the region. I think that many people, of course, things are changing in part because America's demographics uh, have changed. Now you have a significant number of uh, uh, Arab Muslim citizens of uh, United States. Um, but I think that is the basic thing. The, the, the ordinary people, you know, cannot be expected uh, to be historians or anthropologists and so on, and uh, to know about everything, you know, you're expecting them. But part of the problem is that the issues have not been presented to them uh, in a in a realistic yeah, manner and a fair manner. Um, and for at least as far as I can remember, in the Western media, Palestinians have been portrayed as just basically terrorists, whether it was the PLO and Hamas or somebody else. And so I think that people don't know the history of the region, how it happened. And, uh, and, and so I think that's why that they cannot judge properly this situation. In the future, um, so with regards to the current war, uh, how do you see this potentially panning out and what has to be done uh, to solve the bigger problem of the Palestinian question in, in general? Well, I have uh, uh, unfortunately no gift of clairvoyance, <laughs> so I cannot uh... Uh, predict uh, what can I can analyze things, but I cannot predict what is going to uh, to happen. Um, I, I have a feeling that uh, this is going to go on for a while, uh, and I think that uh, um, it's not necessarily for uh, months and months, but at least for for a while it will continue to go on. Um, and I think that this will uh, make the whole uh, issue of dialogue and so on more difficult between Palestinians and, and, and Israel. So in other words, I think that before anything else can be done, there will have to be a period of cooling. Uh, and uh, both uh, Israelis, of course, they suffered as well um, in the October 7 attack and all that. Uh, they have to, everybody has to kind of take a moment and... Uh, uh, lick their wounds, so to speak, a little bit. But at the end of the day, to be honest with you, I think that we really have to go back to the basic concept, which was the, behind the United Nations partition plan. I'm not talking about the specific borders. Of course, the borders of 1948, Israel will not recognize it. And even borders of 1967, they have trouble accepting that. But there has to be some kind of a, uh, a Palestinian entity. You can't just get around this anymore. Uh, and uh, But whether this will happen or not, uh, I don't know. The problem is, unfortunately, as soon as, uh, uh, you know, it's like somebody who becomes ill, and then when... Uh, 
during the illnesses said, oh, if I get better, I'm going to take care of myself. I'm going to do this. I'm going to exercise. I'm going to do that. And then as soon immediately after they get better, they forget what has happened. And unfortunately, often in the post-conflict uh, situation, people go back to the old habits and don't do anything more. Um, but I hope that this time it will not be the same, that this time really both sides, Arabs, Israelis, and uh, they do something fundamental uh, to solve this problem. In that regard, I, I hope this doesn't sound strange, but I've heard people, I, I was just recently listening to uh, an interview with um, John Stewart, the, the comedian that, that does uh, oh, yeah. some news coverage. And he was saying that he feels the problem with the Israel-Palestine conflict is that, you know, the the people that would truly benefit from a solution to it are the Palestinians. You know, you have Arab states like Turkey, which in a way it's almost like, uh, you know, Erdogan needs this conflict to keep going because it helps him get more and more regional influence. I think Netanyahu doesn't want to see the end of this. I mean, he more or less uh, for years, for over a decade now, has been doing everything possible to put the two-state solution off the table. Is part of the problem that, you know, most of the players in this region don't really see a benefit to their themselves when it comes to solving the conflict. Well, I think that, the, as I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, I think that a lot of the regional actors, Turkey and Arab states and Iran even lately, uh, they have all manipulated the Palestinian question uh, to advance their own parochial goals. But my own feeling, however, and it's not just feeling, it's based on what uh, his history, is that uh, elements in Israel, I'm not saying everybody, we had uh, a prime minister in Israel, like for example, prime minister Isaac Rabin and so on, uh, that they were willing uh, to, to uh, kind of consider the whole two-state solution. We had the Oslo Accord, the step-by-step, and taking measures that will uh, help to uh, uh, sort of build confidence uh, uh, between Israelis and the, the Palestinians. But I think that they have been a certain group of politicians in Israel that really their main goal ultimately is to annex the West Bank. And that they so all these settlements and so on that has been going on is to create a, a, a conditions on the ground that will make the whole creation of a Palestinian state impossible. And certainly anything that in the West Bank. And so what they have been willing to consider is just very limited. Uh, you know, like, for example, you can decide, you know, who is going to uh, take the garbage out or something like that, but not even having control over uh, water or anything else, and certainly of security, no nothing. So I think that that has been a major factor in this regard, that they have been groups in, in, um, in uh, and I think religion has complicated uh, matters. Uh, you know, in the early Israel, religion was not so uh, influential. But like the, in the rest of the Middle East, now religion is much more influential. So if you say that God has given this land to us, 
So you feel a sort of entitlement. So you feel the actually the Palestinians as people, as usurpers, you see what I'm saying? So the situation has become much more complex, I think, um, than, than it was before. Just a few more questions in regards to that religious aspect. I know in your article uh, from last year on uh, the Palestine issue, uh, you spoke about how, you know, a lot of times people look at this as, um, you know, a question that is just for the Arab states, but you, you would mm-hmm. say that it's it's also for non-Arab Muslim right. states. Uh, right. Can you speak to that? Yes, absolutely. I think that uh, um, that's why you're seeing that, for example, Erdogan is, uh, you know, he's not doing this just, uh, you know, to gain prestige or influence for Turkey because he's doing it because, you know, he is a religious man. Well, part of it because uh, uh, the um, uh, uh, Jerusalem and the Holy Land, so called, as we call it, is important not only for the Jewish people, uh, but it's also important for Christians. Um, I don't know if you have ever gone. I had the good fortune of going there and went to the Church of Holy Sepulchre. But when you are going up the steps of so-called Via Dolorosa, if any Christian you know, cannot help feeling a sort of connection to that place. Well, the Muslims have also a sort of connection with that because uh, the legend is that the Prophet of Islam, it was from Jerusalem, from the uh, Dome of the Rock, that he ascended to heaven. And uh, the uh, mosque that uh, was built there by the the second uh, Muslim Khalif, uh, Omar, uh, mosque, uh, you know, they call it Al-Aqsa because it means that the furthest from Mecca. Uh, and for a while before Mecca became the focus of the Muslims and their prayer, uh, they pray towards uh, Jerusalem. So I think this is also important for Muslims. Uh, but, uh, you know, so it has uh, the whole Palestine-Israel issue has a lot of layers. It has a layer of territorial dispute uh, that uh, about over the land, who owns the land, to whom the land belongs. Um, and uh, then you have the uh, uh, religious uh, aspect of it. Who has the most right to this place? You know, for example, uh, um, they were thinking, and, you know, the problem is that the Haram al-Sharif or the Al-Aqsa Mosque, uh, it's also where the, uh, if I am not mistaken, it was also the Temple of Solomon or something. So it's just there's too much history also there. Yes, it is important for the Muslims as well, but but the Muslim countries, really the further away they are, uh, are not going to be really that directly involved, uh, uh, I think, in this uh, in this conflict. So essentially, this has to be uh, brokered between Palestinians and Israelis uh, in the first place. Other countries can can play a supporting role in trying to bridge the differences or later to help financially and otherwise uh, to finance a Palestinian state. But as I said earlier, this has to be determined between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Do you think um, one of the problems now, you were mentioning uh, sort of what I would call 
religious um, fanatics in Israel, the sort of Itamar Ben Givers and the uh, Bezalel Smotrich type figures that have been involved with the Netanyahu uh, government, is part of the problem that there are too many, I guess, uh, maximalist or far right voices in Israel that are preventing uh, a dialogue? Well, I think that this is unfortunately the changes that have occurred in the uh, uh, Israeli politics. I just mentioned, for example, uh, the late uh, Isaac Rabin. Uh, you know, you can't uh, compare him with some of the more extreme voices that uh, we are hearing now. And of course, there are extremists on the other side. I mean, some of the uh, maximalist voices that comes from uh, Hamas Palestinians, their supporters that, um, you know, like the dissolution of the whole state of Israel and the creation of just a state that Arabs and Israelis just live there, if you see what I'm saying. So they are uh, they are extremists on the other side as well. And so, yes, I think, and a lot of it has to do with religious uh, aspects, you know. Once you bring in, once you bring God into this kind of disputes, it becomes much more difficult to resolve. Because if you say that God has given this to me, and so how can you compromise, you know? And Arabs believe that God has given it to them, because there is a dispute between the Muslims and the Jews regarding whom Abraham was about to sacrifice. The Jewish people say it was Isaac that they wa he wanted to sacrifice. And the Arabs say that it was Ishmael that he wanted to sacrifice. And since the mythology is that the Israeli people, the Jewish people are descendants of Isaac, whereas Arabs are descendants of Ishmael. So this also becomes really a dispute over Abraham's inheritance. So it, it's a really very, very complicated thing. So my own solution is that you simplify this and just look at it as a question of territory and two different people's rights to statehood and, uh, you know, and then you can resolve it. Then can you get it. The territory, you can divide. The statehood, you can have a Jewish state and you can have a Palestinian state. But if you take this into a metaphysical level, then it becomes very difficult. I also wanted to ask you, uh, after this war, Netanyahu I, uh, said yesterday that uh, Israel plans to uh, manage Gaza's security indefinitely after the war. Um, what do you make of, of the statements that Benjamin Netanyahu has made about essentially saying that Israel may have to occupy uh, Gaza indefinitely. Is that potentially a mistake on his part? Well, you know, I wouldn't want to, uh, I wouldn't want to um, comment on, on his statement, but all I am trying, all I have to say that uh, occupation is not an easy, easy thing to do. I think occupation is a very, very difficult thing to do. You have to see like what Russians are facing in Ukraine. You know, they wanted to occupy it too, but it didn't. Uh, this thing uh, does not, in my opinion, there is almost, you see, there is a um, diminishing return in general as far as force is concerned. The problem is you cannot kill an idea or a sense of identity by military force. 
it is because there is something internal. I mean, you can put me in prison, but you cannot force me to change my mind. You see, this is the problem that a lot of countries, and Israel is not alone, a lot of countries don't understand. Force is not the answer to most of the things in the world. Uh, I mean, and in fact, role, not to interrupt you, but in fact, the, the, the excessive use of force can actually put the country in even more danger. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because you see, the problem is that uh, how much more military, for example, Israel is going to need to also uh, keep control of Gaza. And, you know, the whole thing is, for example, they were saying that they need to have a buffer zone in regard to Gaza. But the problem with buffers is that they grow. You create a buffer zone, then you want to create a buffer zone for the buffer zone. You know what I'm saying? And so this keeps going and going. I mean, that's what Putin is trying to do in, in Ukraine. I mean, it, the whole Putin thing is, is stupid because the reason for being stupid is that actually if Putin takes control of Ukraine, it's because its borders becomes closer to NATO. You know? And whereas if they had remained on good terms with with Ukraine, they could have you know kept that part quiet. So that that's the problem. Then they create the buffer zone. Then they want to create another buffer zone. And then at the end of the day, then you have control. Uh, you have campaign players. What was that last part? I'm sorry. I said about that. Uh, if if you keep uh, creating buffers, buffers and buffers, then ultimately you the main players, international players, coming into conflict increases. Before we close out, do you have any thoughts on uh, how the White House and the Biden administration has handled this? I, I would call it a crisis. You know, the past thirty days, it's been uh, you know just shocking to see and very. Uh, you know, perturbing. And I, I think there's a lot of emotions running high right now. How do you assess how the Biden administration has dealt with all of this? Because I, I think you always provide a good perspective on U.S. foreign policy as someone that comes from a sort of realist school of thought. Well, I think that, uh, um, in my opinion, uh, this is not from even from a realist uh, perspective is a good thing. I think that the U.S., uh, uh, I can understand why the shock of the October and all that. Uh, I think that uh, you know the U.S. felt compelled to reassure Israel. After all, Israel is a, a small country, a powerful but a small country, surrounded by uh, a large number of uh, Muslim states. So I can understand that President Biden wanted to give emotional and other support. Uh, but I have a feeling that in light of what has been going on in Gaza, uh, the White House could have done a little bit more in order to secure a ceasefire, at least a, a kind of a uh, temporary fire, but I mean, not for one day or two days, let's say for two weeks or something to uh, do something for the Palestinians as well. Because the, from a realist perspective, this is going to damage the United States. It certainly is going to damage the United States in terms of its influence uh, among the people uh, of the Muslim world. I just wanted to add to that, uh, not just the Muslim world, but also I mean, a lot of voices in the global south 
that we've been trying to repair relationships with, especially since the uh, outbreak of the Ukraine war, I think are looking now and saying, you know, no, uh, we support the Palestinians. And I I think that's going to be a real problem for the U.S. Well, absolutely. But in general, you see, there is a, a feeling it has been for a long time, you know, in my previous incarnation, I served in the United Nations as a delegate and participated in a lot of uh, uh, debates. And the problem becomes it shows a sort of a double standard in terms of uh, attitudes uh, towards uh, human lives and uh, towards uh, issues of uh, uh, aggression and defense and and so on and and so we have we apply one set of uh, standards when it comes to Russia Ukraine war and a completely different set of standards to what's happening right now in Gaza. I have listeners uh, that I would say, um, you know, have very strong pro Palestinian sentiments, and then I have other listeners that have very strong pro. Israel sentiments, they may, you know, on both sides. I I mean, I know people on both sides. I know people that are Palestinian. I know people in Gaza that I'm worried about. I know people in Israel that I was very worried about on October 7th. Uh, What would you want to say to people that uh, have, I guess, strong biases right now or emotions that are running very high? Well, of course, it is very, uh, it it is not, uh, it's very difficult uh, to control your emotions when uh, you see uh, certain acts of violence happening uh, to people with whom you identify. I, I very much uh, empathize with uh, those uh, uh, people who, uh, you know, support Israel and, and are suffering because of what see that happened on the October 7th. I can I can understand that. And by the same token, I understand the, the Palestinians and people who are supporting them to feel like that. But the problem that is happens is that when you let emotions get ahead of you or you get emotions to determine your attitudes, uh, you are at the end of the day, you end up doing more damage even to people that you are supporting, if you see what I mean. Uh, in in uh, issues of security and politics, one has to be able uh, to really uh, have empathy for both sides in a conflict. And that will be the start of trying to come up with some sort of a solution. Um, but if you feel that whether you are Palestinian will look at Israelis as totally bad, and so nothing can be done with them, and if you are a Israeli, think that you know Palestinians are just uh, beyond the pale, and you can't deal with that, then of course we are going to see this current situation perpetuate and even worse thing to happen. Uh, people have a tendency to dehumanize the other side. Uh, and uh, and we have to we have to resist that. Both sides are human beings, and both sides uh, feel uh, you know aggrieved and and suffer. So the question becomes that what is the best way of preventing from these things occurring again? Because it has been it has kept happening and kept happening. I know I've, I've kept you a bit long here, but I also wanted to no. ask if I could about. Uh, you know, you, you've written a lot about Iran over the years. That's right. uh, could you speak about Iran in relation to this conflict? And, um, you know, I know a lot of people talk about the axis of resistance. Uh, 
where do you think Iran falls in all of this? I know you've been critical in the ways that Iran has been, I, I would say, okay. uh, maybe punching above its weight when it when it supports Palestinians. Could you speak to that issue? Well, uh, my feeling is that, uh, you know, uh, the, at the moment, well, for Iran, the whole Palestine issue uh, became a, a symbol of uh, uh, the Islamic Republic. Uh, part of the reason for that was that uh, the Shah had good relations with Israel. And, and uh, since the uh, Islamists of various uh, coloring and the left uh, did not like the Shah, uh, so they did not like Iran's policy of having good relations with Israel. So this is one element of the kind of anti-Israel uh, of mind of the not everybody in Iran, certainly even in, within the regime, but the more hardline elements. The other element was that the, a lot of the Iranian opposition, including Islamic opposition, uh, were uh, of leftist background. And uh, if you look back in the 1960s and 70s, you know, the left, Soviet Union included, they supported Israel, uh, Palestinians, uh, and a lot of the Iranian opposition trained in the PLO camps uh, uh, in Lebanon and so on. So when you talk, they talk about axis of resistance, axis of resistance of Iran is a reworked version of the concept of uh, axis of rejection. The rejectionist, the so-called rejectionist front. It was uh, Syria and PLO and and the uh, Libya and 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 Iraq at those days. So I think that these are the elements. So the ideologically, this has become very important for the regime, particularly the hardliners, and of course the uh, Iranian regime, Islamic Republic, uh, has a, has a sort of a. They, they they really don't care much for Iran as a nation. They have a universalist uh, uh, interpretation of Islam, and uh, they see themselves as a leader of an Islamic world, and especially the, the uh, supreme leader sees his role not as a leader of Iran, but as a leader of an Islamic world. On the other hand, now, Iranians, Iran is a state. So Iran doesn't want to become into conflict with Israel, or even worse, to become into a conflict with uh, the United States. Because if Iran does anything in the current battle or in any other future battle, then the likelihood that the uh, uh, United States will strike Iran is uh, you know, more than 80%. So these Iranians at the moment, particularly, they are running a very tight rope. Uh, they want to portray themselves that we are the only one that is actually supporting uh, Palestinians and Hamas, but at the same time, they don't want to get into any trouble. That's one reason that the uh, Hezbollah has not gotten involved uh, in this uh, in this conflict so far, anyway, not in any uh, uh, significant fashion. So in a way, the Iranians are at the moment are caught in their own trap. You can't have it both ways. You can't say that I am the only defender of the Palestinians and then stay back at home and not try to do anything and not and, and try to protect yourself against any attack. I think that 
Iran is going to lose. I think in a way Erdogan is also going to lose uh, because, you know, again, they have used the Palestinian issue for their own selfish interests. You see, that's what I'm trying to say. In that regard, um, you know, last time we spoke, uh, I had listeners that said, oh, she's talking about the axis of resistance. And I've heard a lot of people say that they think too much is put into uh, this idea of the axis of resistance. It's really not like a formal thing. Um, what do you want to say to those people? Because I'm, I'm not sure you're saying it's very formal either. It, it's no, no, something- I'm not saying I'm not saying that it is a formal thing, but you, there is a what they themselves call it an axis of resistance, uh, and that includes uh, you know it, it's not uh, made of states as such. It's mostly Iran. Uh, Syria is really just by name is there. Syria right now is not a a, a kind of a viable actor in any uh, in sense or form. I think that it is Iran and then it is Hezbollah and, and certain militant groups in, uh, uh, in, uh, in Iraq and then the Houthis, you know, and uh, they are not, you know, they are no match for uh, certainly U.S.-Israel cooperation or U.S.-Israel, Western Europe, Australia, the whole Western world uh, kind of thing. But uh, uh, Iran uh, uses them also as a sort of a deterrent. Uh, you know, for instance, uh, Hezbollah's main function sometimes is uh, to uh, deter Israel from attacking Iran directly. Israelis have attacked Iran in the sense that, for example, they have attacked uh, uh, some of their facilities and, of course, they have assassinated their their uh, scientists and so on. But they haven't launched a full-scale attack. Part of it, I think, is because they know if they do that, then Hezbollah could attack certain Israeli things. So, yes, it is real. The axis of resistance is real. But I also agree with those who said they, it doesn't amount to much uh, as well. In other words, it is, it's not such as to change the actual, um, you know, balance of power in the Middle East. And I, I was going to say, too, in that regard, I mean, I, I think sometimes we get the impression that the parties in the axis of resistance or what's been called the axis of resistance aren't acting uh, in their own self-interest. And I, I think that's wrong. I mean, I... I don't think that even Hezbollah is just simply uh, a proxy of Iran, at least from people I've talked to. I think all of these different groups have different interests. Absolutely. In In fact, that's why I object to uh, the word proxy. And what it is, however, is that the, shall we say that, I don't want to use the word ideology, but uh, shall we say that the... um, the worldview of certain groups like Hezbollah and the uh, certain militant groups in Iraq and certain uh, elements in uh, Yemen and so on, they share the same perspective. They share the same perspective. And also they have a certain interest. Uh, So for example, it's more of a back and forth between them and give and take. And a lot of them is because of if Iran has emerged as sort of pseudo leader of this resistant group, is because of the politics of other regional actors. For example, let's talk about the Houthis. 
the Houthis would not uh, were not close to Iran as such until the Saudis invaded in 2015. That's when their relationship became stronger. And the same thing with the Hezbollah. And also, I think sometimes uh, um, one has to wonder uh, who who is wagging the tail. You see, because the so-called proxies could also manipulate the the key actor. You know what I'm trying to say? I mean, uh, as I was mentioning, is that Iran right now is in a bit of a bind. They haven't done anything vis-a-vis uh, -vis the war uh, in, in Gaza. They haven't invaded anybody. They haven't, uh, you know, even said anything very strong at the UN or anywhere else. So what this has shown, I think, the Hamas and some other Palestinian groups is that as a state, Iran is going to go only as far supporting them. And the same thing with Turkey. Um, Erdogan simply has had a few words. Of course, the Arab states have been the same way. So I think that there is a, a, a kind of a balance in a way between the the leader of the of the so-called axis and the components of the axis. And the leader does not have absolute freedom. And if they don't do support that is uh, viewed as sufficient, then those other groups might reevaluate their links. I think that they, uh, if Hamas survives, I don't think that they will trust Iran any longer. In closing, uh, you know, there's been a lot of speculation as to why uh, Hamas did the attack on October 7th. Uh, I, I know you're not one, like you said, none of us are clairvoyants or psychics, um, <laughs> but what do you uh, think was behind it? Was it a matter of, I, I think a lot of people are saying that this has killed, um, you know, Israel's normalization with a lot of Arab countries, uh, do you think the normalization process is on ice when it comes to countries like Saudi Arabia, the UAE, et cetera? Has, has this put the Abraham Accords behind us now? Well, to be honest with you, uh, I think that there will be a pause. It will be very difficult, for example, uh, for the Saudis now to establish diplomatic relations with Israel. But my understanding is that really this is not as significant because uh, these countries, uh, uh, UAE, Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, Morocco and others, they have been cooperating with Israel for a very long time. Uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, uh, at least since 2003, that the Iraqi invasion and so on. So I don't think this is going to be the pausing of this process of normalization is not going to affect really uh, the relationship, the secret relationship that has existed between these countries uh, and Israel. I think that uh, what will Israel lose is a sort of a, a symbolic validation because they wanted to show the rest of the world and also to the Palestinians okay, you can continue doing whatever you want, but we are already having all these wonderful relations with other Arab states. So th there will be a kind of a symbolic loss, but as far as the nature of the relationship, I don't see anything to change. It may be a little bit with Turkey, but otherwise I don't see anything to change. 
Well, Shireen Hunter, I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax Use. Is there anything that you'd like to say in closing? What do you think my listeners need to get out of the conversation we've had here for the past hour? Well, what can I say? I say that uh, when you are going to places to vote or you are expressing uh, their opinions and so on, uh, please say vote for peace. Uh, you know, this may sound trite, but vote for peace and uh, vote for keeping conflicts from happening and keeping conflicts from getting out of hand. And also don't support maximalist positions. In the world, we have to live with one another. If everybody wants just to have everything they want and nothing left for the other fellow, then, you know, we're going to be in perpetual conflict. Also, I should mention very briefly here. So it sounds like you're saying that you, you do you not see the current conflict. You don't see it at this point evolving into something like a broader regional conflict, because that, as you said, uh, Hezbollah doesn't seem to want to get uh, too all out involved in Iran doesn't either. Same with Turkey. So you don't see a broader regional conflict on the horizon, right? I don't see any broader regional conflict on the horizon, but uh, I also I'm always believe that uh, uh, surprises can happen. Uh, so I think that one shouldn't be uh, complacent and to say, okay, well, let them do what they want in, in Gaza. Nothing else is going to happen anywhere else. Uh, so I see the risk of, uh, uh, initially, I felt that the risk was higher. But right now, I feel that it, it's not as high, uh, but it's not zero either. Thank you again, Shireen Hunter, for coming on Parallax Use. You're uh, always welcome here, and I really appreciate your expertise and just insights on these matters. Thank you, Michael. It's been a pleasure being with you again, and have a great day. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversations with Juan Cole and Shireen Hunter. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.
I'm not afraid.